When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Are we living in the scooter revolution? You've probably noticed in cities all around the world, electric scooters from San Francisco to Austin, Texas to Paris and Tel Aviv. When we started Lime, we know where the goalpost is. We know what the future will look like, but we don't know how windy the road could get. But that excites me. That's Lime founder and CEO Brad Bow. He started Lime in 2017 as a bike share company, and it has scaled fast and changed a ton. It operates in more than 100 markets across five continents and holds a $2.4 billion valuation. In fact, Lime's growth on a per-ride basis was faster in its early days than Uber and Lyft's entry into ride-sharing. But with all of that growth come challenges. Do you regret anything? Did you grow too fast? We, have, we made a lot of mistakes and we learned from it. In the first few months of 2020, Lime pulled out of a dozen markets and announced layoffs as the company confronts questions about safety, infrastructure, and the environment. Micromobility is inevitable, but is Scooter the final ultimate form? Probably not. Right. We're still in the process of exploring. And in this process of exploring, the best way to learn and to win is to experiment and fail. Born and raised in Wenzhou, China, Brad says entrepreneurship is in his blood. Just wait until you hear the fascinating story he tells me about his own town. He also tells me they need more women at the top of the company and they need women on the board. One of the things we found is we don't understand the, the uh, woman writers enough. Let's jump right in with Lime CEO Brad Bow. Brad Bow, hi. Hey, good morning. Thank you for coming in. Great to be here. We appreciate it. As I'm a I w- big fan of the uh, podcast oh, already. Yeah. You're so nice. Well, you're like the first, well, second one to do it in our fancy new chairs and <laughs> microphones. So thank you for being here. Thanks for coming to CNN. Um, I was just telling you before we started, this has been a fascinating journey for me uh, getting ready for this interview with you because I don't scoot that much. Mm-hmm. And we don't have them. We don't have Lime here in yep. New York City. Not yet. Not yet, <laughs> you say with hope in your eyes. And I just don't know, I didn't know until this a lot about the sector. So I'm excited to introduce it and talk about it and you with our listeners. So just first, for people who don't know Lime, give me the 30-second elevator pitch. Yeah, totally. So Lime provides micromobility services, bike rentals and scooter rentals uh, around the globe. Now we're operating in about 30 countries, 110 cities around the globe, and providing very uh, economic-friendly and also environmental-friendly ways for people to get around. The company is only three years old. Yeah, and your growth has been staggering. So we'll talk about uh, the highs and the lows of growing as fast as you guys have. But first, you. You are from Wuhan, China. That's right. Getting yeah, a lot of a- up attention right now. We'll get to that. Mm-hmm. You were a VC. How did you get from there to here? I think it's a really long story. <laughs> the, uh, I'm first-generation uh, immigrant. I moved here at the age of 28. Mm. Went to UC Berkeley for MBA, 
but main goal at the time was to get to Silicon Valley. Since all my passion is about uh, consumer internet, so I moved it over to Silicon Valley in 2003. Went to school for two years, didn't go to class much. Didn't go to class <laughs> did, much. Did not. <laughs> well, I almost never go to classes ever since high school. But really? <laughs> got my Don't、score. listen to this, kids. <laughs> got my scores nailed and was able to graduate,、mm. but my. Uh, passion is all about new things and what things I can build and what things can make an impact. You you were also, I believe, I mean, you you worked for for Tencent, obviously,、right. which has been hugely successful in China, and you were the first Tencent employee outside of China. Yep. What I mean, how did that mammoth of a company and just your and your background from China shape you? I think that definitely helps us significantly. So when I, upon my graduation from、uh, Haas, UC Berkeley, that my focus is all consumer internet, as you could imagine. At the time, the hot companies are Google, Yahoo,、mm-hmm. uh, Amazon. That I got offer from some of those companies, and then I got a headhunter call me up. This is a very interesting story. Right, call me up, say, hey, I have a leading internet company from China. And is they are trying to build something here, but they don't know what it is. So I guessed it could be only Tencent or Alibaba. It turns out to be Tencent. And I asked them, "What's your mandate? How much do I get paid? You know, the <laughs> everything." And they said, "We have no idea. We hire one person here to figure that out."、And、they that didn't is, even tell you how much you get paid to figure it out. No, <laughs> and that excites me. Oh, and I did my own research. I showed them, say,、hey, here's the average salary for Silicon Valley. Here's、yeah. the、uh, what I got offer from you know Google and Yahoo. And they look at it and say, no, we're a small company.、Uh, we can't afford that. We'll pay you half of the salary, and、half? you have to yeah half, and you have to work twice as long as there's a time difference in China. Very appealing. And also, given they don't have a structure, you know, they cannot pay me any equity. And so, will you join us? And I said yes. So, why? How did you get to yes? What's the yes there? The upside potential? No, I think at the time it's not really that. At the time, is really two things. First, compare the、uh, offer Tencent gave me versus like Google or Yahoo at the time. It's just more exciting. The unknown part is the exciting part. I got to define. Oh, that's interesting. The unknown excites you, and the unknown terrifies me. <laughs> it's true. I well, I, I think it's just probably how I grew up or everything that shaped me in that way. And the unknown part is you got to figure out how much we should pay you. You got to figure out what we do. You got to figure out how we do it, and you got to figure out even to set up how to set up a structure to pay equity. So that excites me. And my so you got the money, you got the equity. Eventually, eventually yeah, nice by、work. proving myself. Sure.、But、the funny part is, my career office or the school career office, I literally called me up, say, "Are you crazy?" The name, <laughs> the name was unknown at the time, since、yeah. Tencent at the time was only a small company,、wow. less than a thousand people, seven hundred fifty million in market cap,、uh, and. The career said that doesn't look good on your resume, and you're dragging on, dragging down our average pay. I said, "Can <laughs> you reconsider?" I said, "No." That is funny. Yeah. So I was there for eight years, build all the international、wow. strategy for them, and establish all the U.S. All right. So you say a lot of your ability and your desire to grasp onto the unknown was from how you were raised in Wuhan. So take me back to 
90s and selling Nirvana t-shirts and you're 14 years old. <laughs> yeah, actually it even goes earlier than that. So my family came from or you know my origin. My family came from a small town called Wenzhou. I'm not sure you heard about this town, but they're no. well known for uh they're really well known for two things. They're well known for entrepreneurship. When China started to open up, the first group of merchants and uh, entrepreneurs were from that town. And then that's what they were well, uh, well known for. The second part of them is they work very hard at being creative. And that story goes all, all the way back. So back then it was a small village in 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 Zhejiang before China opened up. And there among the whole village there are two persons went to college. And it's my mother and my father. Wow. And we were the only family moved around uh, outside of that town. Everyone, wow. everyone else stays there. At the beginning, everyone was, say, uh, was saying, hey, you guys are great. You got higher education. You got the, uh, the stable job, right? My yeah. mother was a doctor. My father was a scientist. Yeah. Everyone was like, hey, you, you guys are doing great, right? Yeah. Do visit us uh, every year or so, you know, when the holiday comes. And 20 years later... China opened up. They all become entrepreneurs. They were the first to uh, to be, if you recall that, China's uh, kind of a slogan at the time, let some get rich first. And they were the some. <laughs> so Wenzhou is known for the highest density of millionaires and highest density of Rolls Royce, really? highest density of five-star hotels, everything, uh, you know, for China. At, they're ahead of the curve. And when we then go back, right, it gave me that kind of contrast of entrepreneurship mm -hmm. and also higher education and what it all means. In China, if you ever mention that, uh, uh, the name of Wenzhou, the little town, you are automatically associated with, with entrepreneurship. Success. No, no, not necessarily success, but, but entrepreneurship. entrepreneurship. Yeah. Okay. So even you with this background, and that's fascinating underestimated how hard it would be to start this company, Lime, and scale it the way you had. Why has it been so hard? I, I think the, uh, the scaling of company in terms of the uh, revenue trips and the markets was not that hard. It's just a perfect market fit, but scaling it with a solid foundation yeah. together with scaling the team was the difficult part. And that's those are the things we don't know, right? When we started Lime, we mm -hmm. know where the goalpost is. We mm -hmm. know what the future will look like, but we don't know how windy the road right. could get. Right. And the, but that and, excites and the, me. And yeah. the road's gotten windy. Yeah. I mean, you guys went global in less than two years. That's right. Talk about that, and also in your mind, what you 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 deem the twenty mile march. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, I think the the first thing is we did quite a few things that are a little bit, let's just say, controversial or not uh, the, the traditional wisdom at the time. Now, one of the things is that you focus on doing one thing and get it right and right. then further scale like it. Like just do bikes or just do... That's right. right. And you did not follow that. We did, I did not follow that. And the second wisdom is uh, to, to validate it in the home market before go international. Normally, company goes international global at a year three five right ten right we went there literally about a year and a half so those are the things we did differently but what guide us are user need mm -hmm. and what guide us are the long-term vision if we are going to be a global company we gotta 
or it's better that we try it early on and learn from it. Do you? All right. So talk about the lessons learned because you know the the bike sharing part of your business is not the predominant part now, and it was sort of can I say disastrous for you guys at moments in China. What did you learn from that? Yeah, that's a very good question, an interesting question as well. First of all, I wanted to state that the、uh, micro mobility is inevitable, but is scooter the final ultimate form? Probably not. Right. We're still in the process of exploring, and in the process of exploring, the best way to learn and to win is to experiment and fail. Just like、art. throw a bunch of stuff at the wall, see what sticks. Uh, I think the analogy could be similar, but the, the stuff you put on the wall still need to be selective. Of course. <laughs> And when we look at the sector that we learn a lot from the China market, what happens there? And we realized a few things. The first, on the good side, is reliable supply does generate user behavior, does change user behavior. That you know, in a positive way, and we're seeing here、uh, as well. The second thing, however, we think that too much supply is actually not good to the business or to the society. And the third thing is how we interact and also supporting the city and community is a very dominant. Uh, consideration we need to have. Therefore, when we start a company, that we said we will be the city friendly, will support the community, we will consider our user not just the riders who ride our、mm-hmm. uh, vehicles, but also the non-riders around them. Right. That's the community part. What's the twenty mile march? The twenty mile march is,、uh, you know, one of the thing that I learned、uh, myself. That,、uh, but the story goes like when. There are two teams are marching towards the、uh, South Pole and see whether who can get there earlier. One of the team only very disciplined, march only twenty miles a day, regardless how good weather or how bad weather is. Well, as the other team will say, we'll do two hundred miles when weather is good, and we will stop and wait for the better weather when when there、uh, gets rough. So the twenty mile march is. A way to encourage up our team that we are facing a lot of unknowns. But what we do know, two things: we know where the goal is, and we know that step by step, by making solid progresses,、yes. we will get there. So, is it better to go far in good weather and then wait out the bad weather, or go in all weather? It's go in all weather. Okay, so bundle up. Coming up, Lime CEO Brad Bow shares his biggest lessons learned. Your growth. I mean, as far as I understand it from the research I've done, Lime's growth on a per ride basis was faster in the early days than Uber's. Yeah. And Lyft's,、um, but there have been bumps, right?、Uh, you know, bikes in China. Since then, you guys have had layoffs. A number of your early employees have left. You acknowledge that.、Mm-hmm. Do you regret anything? Did you grow too fast? Yeah, I think the.、Uh Is it regret and mistake are two things? That's fair. <laughs> yeah, we have we made a lot of mistake and we learn from it. Yeah, regret or not,、uh, I guess personality wise, I just don't regret.、Hmm. I think we at the time made the best decision based on the information we have, and but more more importantly is what we learn from it. So we did make some mistakes and we learn from it,、uh, and that's one of the. 
uh, guiding principle in the company as well. Biggest it's a, lesson? Uh, biggest lesson? Uh, there are a lot. What? <laughs> there are a lot. Oh, there are a lot. Yeah, I think the uh, you know some of the biggest lesson. One of that is we should have to do more and uh, further incorporate the um, the methodologies how we incorporate uh, how mm. to to support the communities. I think that part that we started real to to further realize it uh, along the way that yeah. what it means to well, people they, around. They say you want to go fast, go alone. You want to go far, go together, right? Yeah, and I've that's certainly right. been guilty of the the first at times, but I've learned through my career. You want to go far, you go together mm-hmm. for sure. So let's talk about big. Market. Are, by the way, are scooters legal? Like companies like yours legal in China yet? They weren't. Uh, not. Not yet. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, you're not here in New York City. Yeah. And you're not in San Francisco. We are. I've. You are now. Yeah. We oh, are good. Now. Okay. I got that wrong. Um, <laughs> good for you guys. So I've used them in other parts of the country before, and I've tried them. I'm not very good. It's a little intimidating to me, but there's <laughs> that. Um, how do you get into New York City? How do you get into every city you want to be in? The uh, the approach we're taking right now so is to to collaborate with the city as we did uh, as we always do and share the data f- to to the city and community wisdom share the data with them and make sure they understand number one what are the benefits we can potentially bring in number two that what are the measurements around safety and city cleanliness. That we are going to implement, and number three, that uh, what are our plan and track record to prevent mm-hmm. the unwanted consequences? For people who don't like, if my mom's listening to this, I don't think she knows how to listen to podcasts. But if she is, she would not have any idea what this was, nor how to use it. But what I think people don't know is that people can leave these anywhere that's not docked, like mm-hmm. a rental bike or a city bike, for example. And that comes with a lot of latitude and convenience for people, and it comes with some headaches yep. for you guys. I mean, there are even you know these companies that go around and like pick you. You have juicers who you pay to do That's it, right. but then there's other people who go around and pick them all up, and that creates a headache for you guys. Mm-hmm. What have you learned about that process? Yeah, I think the uh, we learned actually quite a bit of that, and that goes back to one uh, what I mentioned is. How do we make sure the we're not only just provide value and benefits to the riders, but how do we make sure not create right. problems no to the non-riders? No city wants a bunch of scooters like piled up on the corner. Yeah, I, I think there are two parts to it. The first part will be what the future will look like. Or is there any reference we can uh, kind of a peek into the future? And Copenhagen, Amsterdam is kind of like that. Right? There's no dogs. There's no you know, clearness since people are getting used to it, user will park it like fairly neatly in a, in the right proper location. But we're not there yet. Right. It takes step to get there. And therefore we started to deploy technologies. The technology was, you know, GPS location, recommended parking spots and and also we ask a user uh, to take a photo of their parking so we make sure they park at a proper place. Is that asking too much of users? Like, I don't really want to stop and take a picture of where I am and send it to you. Yeah, I, I think the compa- in comparison that if you park a car on the street, you go to pay for the parking. That's even more inconvenient. I think, Sometimes, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so again, that's, those are 
the experiments we're doing okay. to incorporate that the community aspect of. Are it. you guys fundraising now? Are you actively looking for money? Because there's been some different reporting on this. Joe Kraus, obviously your your president, talked about it and said in an Axios interview, "There's no no active fundraising." Do you want money right now? There's the we always talk to investor. I think it's a long game the way we look at it, and that's been reflected in. Our investor base as well. We prefer long-term uh, capital. I mean, you have some money from big. You know, you got Google Ventures, Uber, Andreessen Horowitz, etc. Yep. Um, I'd like to spend time on on the safety issue here because you have said before in previous interviews I've read if ve- if a vehicle is not safe, we should not be putting it on the street. Exactly. There have been some issues with yours in terms of the baseboard. I don't know if I'm using the correct technology mm-hmm. breaking before you're on to I think generation three mm-hmm. now. Yeah. Um, what what is safe to you? What is safe in your mind? The safety, uh, there, my definition of safety, there are two. One is actually two dimensions to look at it. One is uh, absolutely safety versus relatively safety. That We are focusing on making the service safer than even bikes. So safer than bikes. Safer than bikes. That's what we're working on. The second part of safety is passive safety and proactive safety. So passive safety is just, hey, how how the vehicle itself is safe, right? As a traditional right. bike or that we're working on that, we're making it safer than bikes. And on the proactive part is getting more interesting since technology in the first time at such a large fleet can do the things that nobody else did yeah. before. For example, that our vehicles are speed limit, you know, speed limited. You know, none of our car is speed limited, but our vehicles are. They won't go over a certain they speed. They won't go over a certain How speed. How fast? Uh, depends on the city. It's somewhere between 12 to 15 okay. miles per hour. Yeah. And also, we have dynamic speeding. Right. And that is, take, again, taking consideration of the community. For, let's just say the vehicle goes close to your school zone. It will slow down to about 8 miles or 5 miles an hour. Helmets are not mandatory, we follow the uh, local regulation that well, some will require it, some don't. But, okay, I ask because, for example, City Bike here in New York City, helmets are not provided with the bikes. But mm-hmm. Revel, which is the, you know, like moped, scooter, I shouldn't say scooter. It's fun. I've done it. Moped, <laughs> motorcycle, I don't know. There are helmets in yep. the back. Um, but you guys don't provide helmets on all of your Lines. We we cannot attach it to the scooter, right. but we gave away about a quarter million of scooters. Uh, yeah, you spent three million dollars doing that. Um, but should it be yeah. like I don't know? I'm a parent, and I sort of freak out about my kids being a little bit older and riding on one without a helmet. Do you envision a day, or do you see a need to make them mandatory, where you figure out a way where people have to like hook the helmet back on when they park it? Yeah, we are experimenting a lot of things on that, and we're doing some partnership on that as well. The helmet issue with that is not the technology to hook it up. Yeah. It's the hygiene part. The hygiene? You don't mind to ride someone's scooter, or share with someone uh, on a scooter or a bike or not. You do not want to wear someone else's sweaty helmet. That's I did, I guess, in that when I <laughs> rode that Revel, right? Right, but not, uh, it's, uh, we have to take into the healthy okay. part of the consideration as well. So we're experimenting all what, different things. What yeah. about training? Okay, so looking at some of the numbers here of the research that was done, um, the CDC and Texas Austin Health um, Department did this study. I know you know about mm-hmm. it. And it found that one in three injured riders were hurt on their first trip. And about 
who were injured had ridden nine times. Um, I know you guys have an instructional video, et cetera, for people to use, but is there any way to get those numbers down? Like, does does that alarm you? I have a friend in Atlanta who I don't think it was one of yours, but like flipped over wow. the top of it. So, yeah. and he wasn't drinking. So, um, I don't know what what like what could make these most safe. Yeah, I think there are a few things we're doing right now. First is we're launching globally called the First Ride Campaign, which is an educational camp uh, teaching and teaching users how to use it and also have, give them a safe space to practice. So that's the safe right, uh, first ride campaign that we're doing globally right now. Uh, the second thing is to share the data with city to build the infrastructure better. You know, I'm not sure what exactly happened with your friend, but sounds like, you know, very likely there was a pothole on the street where things like this, we see that quite a bit. Protected bike lane will reduce the yeah, uh, the incident rate by like as much as 90%. And we were the first company uh, to share data proactively with the city. You're, you're also doing something interesting when it comes to you know, people riding drunk, which is a real issue. I mean, there's like, I, I believe on the weekend evenings, there's an interstitial or some basically test yeah. to test sort of how with it someone is. And if they're not, if they don't pass, they can't ride. Right. So that goes back to we are proactively improve safety now, which has never been done before in uh, at a large scale. We are. I feel like every car should have that. I I agree. Yeah, and and beyond that, you know, the other thing we're doing really interesting right now is a sidewalk riding detection, yeah. meaning a user rides on the sidewalk that will detect it, will warn them, and it will slow down, and then eventually stop the vehicle. We are piloting in San Jose, California, right now. More from our conversation with Lime CEO Brad Bow after the break. All right, so back to what works and what doesn't and trying a bunch of stuff and being risk takers. You guys started as a bike share company. You In this country, in the U.S., it was U, uh, UNC Greensboro. You've since pulled bikes from there. Yep. You're way more focused on scooters. Do bikes matter anymore for in terms of share services? I think it does, but not. Uh, it does in some of the cities. So we still have the bike services in some of the city right now. Right. It just but you really pulled way back. Yeah, we pulled way back for in order to to keep a sustainable business. That every aspect of the business, in terms of revenue, uh, profitability, mm-hmm. efficiency of the vehicle, and also user feedback matters. So we're focusing on scooters right now. Um, in terms of where this goes, because you even said at the outset, like. You're not done at scooters. Scooters, you don't even think, is the end game nope. for, for you guys. And again, I'll bring up Joe Kraus again, who came to you guys, who's president. Um, he said something that struck me, and I wonder if you can elaborate on it, that a lack of imagination is the biggest barrier to this business right now. What, do you? Is he right? Uh, I think there are different aspects of, uh, to look at it. I do think that it, you know he is right in the aspect that what the future urban mobility will look like. We don't know yet. What technology can do to make it safer, make it, make it more convenient, we're still experimenting. But I would, to me, I think that one of the biggest barriers for this business to further grow is actually perception. Perception. It's perception of car-centric. I cannot live without a car. I have to do it even in one mile. I have to take my five-seater, seven-seater car you know, to go there. But, okay, I hear you. And this is the Lyft and Uber argument, too. And, you know, 
when I had the lift team on, I said to them, okay, but solve for me. Okay, so after work, after we're done here, I'm going to go back to Brooklyn, to my mm-hmm. house, and this afternoon I'm going to take my two-year-old to his two-year doctor appointment in our car, yep. in his car seat. That's right. right? And I, I definitely cannot put my one, well, now two and almost four-year-old on a lime. How do you solve for people like me? That's exactly I think, where some things are uh, different. We are building a service meaning that we're not going to ask everyone say, hey, one yeah. size fits all, you have to replace everything. Yeah. Car is a great invention of human beings. You will be there. It just doesn't necessarily to be 100% of the case. Do you think micromobility and what you guys are trying to do will rival slash parallel in some way how significant the Model T was for this country? I do believe so. I do believe so for a few reasons, which I can describe in uh, in numbers. First, urban mobility is about 70% of the total traffic. And that means, yes, I, I have a, two kids who are similar to yours. I have the three-year-old oh. and one-year-old. So you know what it's like. I know what it's like. <laughs> but, it does deal, but when it comes to urban mobility, travel to office or not, right, going to lunch and catch a train, I don't need my five-seater, seven-seater car. No, true. So what we believe in is purpose-built vehicle, and it will be has to be electric-powered, has to be very space-efficient, and has to be shared in an urban environment and purposely built for the trip. Seventy Out of 70% of the traffic I just mentioned in the urban environment, majority of them are single occupancy and less than two miles. And that's where the, our target market is. And therefore, today's mentality and perception is that I still need to take my car or, yeah. or behavior mm-hmm. versus why we're growing so fast globally is when users f- f- discover the alternative, take them half of the time, cost them you know a third of the price, and is you know, environmental friendly. They they adopt it really well, rapidly. Can can we talk about the environmentally? And then I want to get back to IPO and profitability and all of that. But just because, you know, these aren't cars or big trucks doesn't mean that the process of making them and charging them and transporting them is emission-free. You know there's been a lot written about this, especially lately. I mean, the disposability is an issue. How long do they last? How do you dispose of them? The material used to make them aluminum, lithium battery, rubber wheels. I mean, there there are they do raise environmental issues. Mm -hmm. So... How do you square the square the circle here? Because y- you keep saying they're environmentally friendly, and I get it. They're not an SUV, but it's not perfect yet. It's not yet. I the I the one of the interesting thing to think about what guide us, right, entrepreneurs or myself, that to keep on working on a challenge and knowing that we're right is to me is the the the, uh, the fundamental rules. You know, in here, the rule of energy that really comes into play. When moving one person from A to B, uh, the scooter service compared to a typical car, it consumes about one-eighties to one-hundredth of energy. And that eventually translates into somewhere. That if it's a gas car, you're moving 4,000 pounds of glass and, uh, you know, steel rubber with you. So consuming energy, the green energy started with one thing is how much energy you, you consume. Then is how it's generated. 
and same as the materials. We're moving a 40-pound of vehicle together with you versus a 4,000-pound of vehicle together with you. What's the biggest environmental challenge? Is part of it making these last longer so you have yes. less you have to dispose of? That's the, okay. Yeah. We made the, uh, our vehicles are lost more than 10x longer compared with when we get started. And you want to keep that number going up? I, absolutely. Yeah. Together with that, we are the first company to commit on uh, 100% renewable energy. We already are, we're already there. We are the first, uh, you know, second-gen micromobility company to commit on uh, zero waste do you in wanna, the future. Do you want to sell or do you want to go public? I think the, uh, that's not in, uh, on top of my head right now. I just really? need to focus on... You don't on. think about that every day? No. <laughs> My focus is to make the solid foundation of the company, as you you see, uh, as I mentioned earlier. Meanwhile, I think we're really early at the the, the curve of the wave. Uh, okay. Well, again, back to back to your counterpart, Joe Krause. He's talked about wanting to go public. Is that you said profitability like full, not just not just city by city full. profitability, full profitability this year, twenty twenty, still happening? I think it's happening this year, not this month. Not this month. Okay. We're early in the year. It's the beginning of February. Okay. But you're still on that course. Of course. Um, when we talk about what works and what doesn't, I think lessons, people listen to this podcast a lot to learn about leadership from people who lead and who, who lead well and who've gone through bumps. As I mentioned at the outset, you guys have had layoffs. Um, you just had layoffs in, in, in a number of cities, 14% of your full-time employees have had right. sort of major staff shakeups at the mm-hmm. top. What, what's your advice for people as they're scaling fast and they're looking at this and, you know, it's painful to it lead is. in layoffs. It was very uh, emotionally heavy for me and for my leadership team. Uh, first of all, I don't think there's any shakeup in the leadership team. Well, Zero, you've, had, yeah. you've had changes in leadership. For example, you taking on yeah. this role. Yeah, along the way, yes. Yes, along yeah, the way. Not, not, not yeah. recently. Right. So one of the the uh, the thing when I talk to my peer founders and all that, and it, it was very interesting. And one of the most painful thing for a startup startup founder is when you get started. The company is small; nobody can see the future yet, and the best talent won't join for that reason. Therefore, we had to hire friends. You know, friends can do a bit of accounting. Friends can do a little bit of HR, and knowing if the company here's a dilemma. Yeah. The dilemma is if a company doesn't go well, while friends support each other, everyone was cool. Sure. If a company goes well, you know you have to let them go when the company goes well. That's the dilemma. Did you have one to fire of the most painful thing. Uh, we actually had to replace some of them. Not by not not to fire them outside of a company, but we have to replace the certain role with higher caliber. That's hard. That's really hard. And that also reflects into the company's growth, right? Every company at different stage, uh, in terms of the size, in terms of maturity, we need different type of talent. So Ben Horowitz, which gave me a lot of advices. Who is on the podcast? Ben uh, is on, yeah, Ben's exactly on the podcast. Right. People can listen to it. He has yeah. a great new book out. It's to hire the right people for that right stage. Yeah. Uh, and then the other thing I probably, you probably heard a lot of times is one of the mistakes as founders could uh, well make is hire too fast fast and fire too slow. Yeah, and that's Ben talks about that. Like leaders, good leaders have to make the really hard decisions and make them fast. That's right. So in our case that we hired really, really fast and we we also fire really, really fast. So I don't think that we 
made a mistake on that. Mm. But I do think that when we evaluate a business, mm-hmm. uh, we are not precise enough. Uh, to measure like how big the you know how big the team we should need it for the size of the business yeah. or what the, what that means to the sustainability of a company. Therefore, that we had to make the hard choices yeah. at some time. Yeah. Let's talk about diversity uh, in leadership. Um, I was looking around online and trying to figure out how many women you guys have high up. Mm-hmm. And also, if you have any women on your board, and I didn't find that you have any women on your board, do you? Not yet. Why? Uh, today, we one of the things we're doing right now is to keep the board very small. Therefore, that. But it's still this, a six, yeah. seven. How no, about, it was um, four. Four. Okay. It's me and my co-founder. Okay. And therefore, we have two major investors, two other board members. So that's. That's four. Why yeah. small? Why keep it small? Faster decision and also deeper conversation. Do you worry that, I mean, you know, you're a data guy, you're a numbers guy. You know what the data says about having diversity on boards and how and, companies uh, perform. Do you think you would yeah. benefit from having female representation and more equality of course. on your yeah. board? Of not only that, I think we, we actually disproportionately will benefit from it. So the yeah the reason I'll give you a little bit of background thinking and reason of that since our surface first of all we want to be uh, for universal right or diversity or gender or you know demographic or age age group and we're working hard on that and one of the things we found is we don't understand the the uh, woman writers enough even though our user base is higher than a typical you know bike share business or just bike commuter in general mm-hmm. we are already higher but we think we can do a lot more there so we benefit we will benefit a lot from uh, you know diversifying the leadership and also board members today that since we keep it small we don't have we have not we have not started the process to add you know independent board members to it and that's where our okay. opportunity is that's so interesting what you just said we do not understand women riders enough i assume right. that means more of your riders are men than women today is okay so you obviously want to get more women on yes. board you're planning to add women to the board as you bring in more of course and what about in the higher ranks of the company and higher rank we have a unique profile of a, a woman leader in the in a, in the yeah we call it yeah, executive leadership team Already, and we have a very interesting profile of uh, a not so typical, you know, woman leadership in the company. So HR in a lot of companies are uh, female woman leader that we have as well. But we have a female CTO, a woman CTO, hmm. which is fairly unique. It is, yeah, and. And also our general counsel is a woman yep. as well. Yep. So that give us some perspective of yeah. uh, the uh, you know their thinkings and also their value addings. But meanwhile, that they're super qualified, and that you know that may uh, actually su- not surprising me, but also surprise some others. As oh, you have you know a a woman CTO, and you can see some of the perspective is a, a little bit biased, and. 
when 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 I introduce our CTO to the uh, uh, you know other people that and what she has accomplished, then realize that there she is totally qualified or overqualified. What and you you get why I go down this path because of, of the, the dearth yeah. of women in leadership in a lot of these Silicon Valley companies. And there's a lot. I mean, there are there is the argument that maybe some of the sort of dramatic collapses and failures we've seen in some of the companies maybe wouldn't have happened if there was more diversity of perspective exactly. on the board or or high up, right? Do you think that some of the lessons you've learned or the hard lessons you've learned over the first three years might have been mitigated a little bit more if you had a little bit more diversity there from the jump? Uh, I cannot pinpoint how that directly, uh, you know, uh, correlated to right. each other. But I do, in general, agree that if we can further diversify, yeah. not just the uh, leadership but the entire company, that will will significantly benefit from it. So let's. Is there a dream hire of a woman on the board before we move on? Someone you would love to have on your board? Uh, Sherry Semberg. Okay. Yeah. There, have you asked her? No, not, right. I haven't got a chance, and I, th- I think she is busy with uh, the new engagement. <laughs> I think she's busy. Yeah, congratulations to, to her on her engagement. Stay tuned. Lime CEO Brad Bow tells me why he's committed to getting more women at the top of the company and women on the board. Let's end on a few other things, and that is China. You told me at the beginning... And it's fascinating how how being born in Wuhan, China, and your work there, and then at ten, and then with Tencent, shaped you personally and and in business. Um, but I'd like to talk about China right now and the Chinese government and human rights concerns. Um, I talked to almost every CEO that sits in your chair about this issue when it comes to millions of Uyghur Muslim majority people there uh, being held in camps. Where do you fall on that? I mean, where is your head right now on the Chinese government and how it's operating and what it means to, you know, for businesses that are operating there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the, well, first, first of all, my head is really down to the business. Uh, so it pays less attention to some of the stuff. But given that it's China and the outbreak is uh, in the city where I grew up, I spent, you know, a little bit more time trying to understand it. Well, that that's about the coronavirus. Yeah, coronavirus. So we'll get to that in a minute. But right. I'm asking about in, hu- human rights concerns within mm-hmm. China because I, I know your business is not legal in China now, but I assume you you hope that you can operate in mainland I hope, China. Yeah. So, do you have concerns about the Chinese government on the human rights front right now, especially when it comes to the Uyghur population? Yeah, I think the here's my perspective on that. Given that uh, I lived in China for about 25 years. Yeah. So I think the overall trend is actually significantly improved, and it's on the path to improve. The only thing that make my statement might create a little bit controversial is because a lot of stuff showed up in the last few years. If you look back 30, 40 years ago, I think human rights was worse. Well, There are a lot more, I do believe, that the China government need to do. But I think overall, if I look back, they're, they're getting better, not worse. Okay, but you still have, I mean, if I just look to what U.S. Assistant Secretary of State Randall Shriver has said recently, that as many as 3 million Muslim-majority Uyghur people 
uh, it looks like are being held in these massive government camps. For example, if you think about operating your business there and, mo- and expanding there, does that give you pause? It does. Yeah, I, I don't know that for fact or not. I, I just don't know. I have the access to the information. This is the U.S. government analysis. Secretary right. Pompeo, et cetera, mm-hmm. says this. So right. a, as a U.S. company that's looking to operate there. Of course it will give me pause. And if, you know, again, I just don't know it, but anywhere that happens, it will give me not only pause, it give me uh, like heartbreaking sort of, you know, feeling and also a little bit, you know, fear, mm-hmm. not fear, but furious. <laughs> you, on the coronavirus before we end, um, I mean, d- daily here, it is spreading massively. Obviously, the origin was in Wuhan, where you are from. Your family, your friends, okay? And what are your what are your th- thoughts on it? Yes, yeah, so, so my... I have a lot of uh, friends and classmates still in Wuhan, and uh, you know through the internet gave us the access or com- communication tool to to stay in touch. So I think number one that many are, are sort of like trapped in the city today, and of, as we could only imagine that they live in fear. Anyone in that situation will be. Uh, they do feel that they they are getting help. But the materials or that are not adequate. Not enough. Not enough. Um, you know, me, myself, and also a bunch of my uh, friends here that we did uh, did our thing to do donations and help them on some of that. But we're so far away. Are they reaching the people? Are the donations and things you sent reaching people? Yeah, I believe so. I think this is these are the moments that uh, you know we're talking about human lives. Yeah. So it's not the uh, you know some other situation. I believe I cannot say for sure since I'm not there to audit it. But from the uh, you know the act, the information I know that most of them should be reaching who who is in need. I hope so because it is very very scary for it so is. many there and now around the world and in the United States. Right. Um, let's end on this because we're we're out of time. I ask people often two questions at the end, and and I think the first is what is. What is success for you? For a guy who doesn't need to sleep very much, who works around the clock as a parent <laughs> to one and three-year-old, what is what is success for you, Brad? To me, that uh, the way I see it is the uh, I think it's a more Eastern Zen kind of culture. I live a really simple life. You live a simple life. Very simple. Even life. though you got off a plane at two in the morning, <laughs> slept yeah. a few hours, came to CNN, <laughs> going to go to meetings, fly back over to the West Coast tonight. Right. What I meant is that I I, I don't you know fancy like luxury ah. goods, food, you know, vacation. I don't like I lie on beach. I don't go to casino. You don't like I don't to lie on a drink beach. much or that stuff. Yeah, it's just <laughs> not my thing. But I think the at the end of the day, what I believe is we all we all live once, and the. Uh, at the end of the day, we, we we end up the same. So what it matters is whether I can settle with myself that life is a journey. It's not about the end game. It's about you know whether through the journey I enjoy it, I feel accomplished, I feel fulfilled, I feel I made my contribution and impact to this world. What do you want your kids to say about you one day? I hope that they will say you know our father loved us very much our father is a uh, honest and uh, respectful man and made his 
contribution to make the world better, which is one of the one of the driver for us to create a lime and also to uh, to keep on going is can we make it better? We majority of us live in the city, in the urban environment. How do we make it better? It's not getting better now. It's getting worse. Traffic, pollution, isolation, everything is getting worse. So at least we can do something to change it. And fundamentally, hopefully, ten years down the road, we look back that we don't want to live in the city today. We rather live in the city. Tomorrow, Brad. It's so nice to meet you. It's been fascinating for me to learn more about this and to hear your story. Thank it's you. It's my pleasure. All Thank right, you. Come back in a few years. All right. Appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Boss Files. I would love to hear your thoughts on this week's episode and people you want to hear from. So leave a review and follow me on social media at Poppy Harlow CNN. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.